to Luke chapter 15. I got a text last week after the sermon, someone wanting to know the rest of the story. It went like this. Inquiring minds want to know, do your MMA classmates still speak colorfully when you are around? End quote. Uh, number one, I, I love the fact that this person said MMA classmates. I look so forward to going to practice and training and telling my classmates that Redeemer sends their greetings as classmates. <laughs> That's hysterical. Uh, the second thing is, um, yes, they do. They do speak colorfully around me. Uh, I think it seems that I've become safe to that group. And the reason why I know this is because I could be out in public spaces now and I'll hear my name in colorful language and they will come up and talk to me when I didn't even see them. And my wife actually got a text or a message because I'm not on Facebook and this person is. He lost his contacts. One of the fighters, Jorge, wanted to get in touch with me. I'm like, that's wild. And then I knew that I had become safe to them for this reason. One day I came into practice and everybody was visibly upset. Uh, something really bad happened to someone in their world. Um, and they asked me to pray out loud before practice. I also know God is at work in this gym. And the reason why I do is one Tuesday evening I was training with Kevin. Kevin's an ex-military guy. He's probably 27, 28. Tough kid. A couple years ago he broke my ribs. I still have one that sticks out right here. Y'all want to see it? <laughs> it's a badge of honor. It's called getting your wings. <laughs> I didn't realize that, but I've got a wing. I don't want the other side to match, so I'm, I'm fine with this one right now. But Kevin says, hey, Jeff, did you see the movie Noah? And I went, yep, I did. And he said, um, how accurate is that movie? <laughs> Was it really like that? Now, um, I couldn't help it. My, my mind went to those, tr those creepy tree ant-like creatures in the movie, if you saw it, that were like sweeping things away with some Gnostic extra-biblical source that was used about some angel, human, I have no idea. My mind went there, then I went to how stupid God was portrayed and Noah was portrayed in the movie, and my mind starts racing to all these, these different biblical and theological and apologetic directions, thinking, oh my word, how do I answer this thing? And then while we're doing that before, we're still drilling. So we're still doing our drills and running through our grappling motions on the mat. And, and then he stops and he says, you know what I kept thinking during the flood? I kept thinking, would I be one of those on the ground or one of those in the ark? I kept thinking, am I good enough to get in the ark. I think, I think this is what I, I looked like. And, and everybody's fighting and grappling, and, and we're just two dudes just standing there. I mean, here's this tough, tough kid, y'all. I mean, tough. Completely vulnerable. And I said to him, Kevin, I'm one of the ones on the ground. We all are. No one is good enough to get on the ark. 
And that's why Jesus came into this world. And that's why he's the better ark. Now, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Somebody's got it. Come on up, bud. Luke 15, verses 1 through 2, 11 through 24. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the, son, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey, journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was a long, still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. From this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. May you shine on the page. May you fill us with your spirit. Uh, may we re-experience this text. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, this is part two of a three-part sermon series on two lost sons. The textual structure is fairly straightforward. I want us to look at it because you need to get your bearings. It's good to have our bearings. Look at 15.1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Now, jump to verse 3. So, he told them this parable. So, what we have now in Luke 15 is three stories telling us why. Telling us why tax collectors and sinners and messed up people flock to Jesus. Now look at 15.2, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now jump to verse 3 again. So he told them this parable. So Luke 15 is three stories telling us why 
telling us why religious people grumble at Jesus. Why church people grumble at the very reason Jesus is so attractive to messed up people. So there are two themes running side by side throughout this passage. Why messed up people are so attracted to Jesus and why religious people are not. That's the passage. Last week we saw the lost younger son and we saw why messed up people are attracted to Jesus. We saw that there's an attraction in this text that's absolutely breathtaking. There's an attraction in this text that wins us over. There's an attraction in the text and it's the only power that's able to reach the bottom of our soul and transform it and change it and make it new. Next week, or today, we're going to look at the younger son again because we could not get it all done. It's impossible. It's a Herculean feat. I don't think anybody could do. Uh, We're going to look at what being found looks like today. And then next week, we're going to look at what does it look like to grumble at the grace of God with the older son, okay? All right, so we pick up our story in verse 17. So everything's moving, right? Right, 17. We pick it up with the lost younger son as far away from the father as he possibly can be. We pick it up with a lost younger son decreating right before our eyes. We see this lost younger son decreating, unraveling, being reduced to chaos and to recklessness and to famine and to need and to rejection right before our eyes. And so here we get to the point of him actually being undone, decreated, and we find verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He came to himself. Something happened deep in his heart. Something became clear to his mind. Something became real to his heart. Something hit home. Something struck deeply. Something that's actually the hardest and most difficult thing in all the world to have happen. You and I can know. How do you know a work of God's at work in our lives? You can know when this most impossible, hardest thing happens to you. Honesty happens. Honesty happened to him. And it happened in his heart. His heart is a unity. His heart thinks, his heart feels, his heart desires, and in the deepest reality of the heart, it trusts. And whatever it trusts, it treasures and loves and worships. And the heart is a single unity. It's not a division of heart, mind, soul, strength compartmentalized. The heart is your whole inner being. And so sometimes your heart thinks and understands and perceives, and sometimes your heart feels and has deep emotional structures, and sometimes your heart desires and wants and craves, and sometimes your heart is trusting and resting and relying and rejoicing and worshiping and loving. All of that's the heart, and he came to his senses in his heart. There's a children's book called David Gets in Trouble by David Shannon. Anybody have that? The other one that he has, my personal favorite, is David Smells. That's a really good one. But anyhow, David Gets Into Trouble is a story of a boy who, well, gets in trouble. He likes drawing on living room walls, breaking windows with baseball bats, 
clogging things in the toilet, torturing the cat, burping at the table, and doing, well, boy stuff, right? When David gets into trouble, he always says, no, it's not my fault. Or he says, I didn't mean to, or it was an accident, or no, it wasn't me. (laughs) Does David sound familiar? Oh, my word, David is every teenager in this room. David is every 80-year-old in this room. David is every wife and husband in this room. David is every political leader. David is every culture and race and ideology. David is every country and every nation. (laughs) We all do this. We all do what is absolutely impossible to do. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. Be honest about ourselves. So we avoid honesty about ourselves at all costs, and we've been doing it ever since the beginning of all things. When sin entered the world, we began to cover and flee and run anything but honesty. How do you know God's at work in your life? How do you know he's at work in a church? Honesty is present. People are coming to their senses. What does it look like to be found? It looks like coming to our senses. It looks like honesty. It looks like becoming honest about yourself. That's what it looks like, being found. What is it that the younger son, though, is specifically honest about concerning himself? Yes, that. Look, I mean, look at the word in verse 17, perish. It occurs eight times in Luke. It's a favorite word of Luke's, and it means to perish means to be lost, The younger son has come to his senses. He's become honest about himself. He's basically saying, I am lost. Luke scholar James Edwards says, that is the most essential of all admissions because only the lost are found. Many scholars and theologians and Bible students and really, really super holy people say, however, though, but he has mixed motives. I mean, look at it. He's more concerned about his hunger. You know, um, everybody back home's eating but me. He's lost. He's honest. But it seems to be more about hunger than it is remorse or a godly sorrow, right? And the answer is, yep, that's true. And then James Edwards helps us respond the right way, though. Here's what he says. He says, Scholars worry that his repentance was not entirely altruistic, which means unselfish. First of all, is there such a thing as an unselfish act? I think Edwards and Kant and a few others might, no, Kierkegaard would disagree. Kant would agree. Kant would say that the only moral value you have is to be unselfish. So in other words, you're not engaged in what you do at all. You find no delight or joy in anything that's good. So how is that good? The issue isn't being selfish. The issue is being where yourself is engaged in, the object of yourself. Where are you finding delight? Where are you finding joy? Where are you pursuing good? Is it the good of others? Is it God? Or is it good in self? That's selfishness. All right, how did I do that? Scholars worry that his repentance was not entirely altruistic that hunger rather than remorse drove him home. That seems to me, he says, (laughs) like worrying whether people are in church for the right reasons. Is it necessary that his motives be perfect for the Father to receive him? Fortunately for all of us, 
the God of Jesus and the Father in this parable, he is willing to accept a sinner on almost any terms. End quote. You and I are always a mixed bag of motives. It's like taking a wire that has red, yellow, black, green. That's your life. That's your motives of everything you do. The most pure motive you've ever had and will ever have, let's say it's the yellow wire, is surrounded by black, green, yellow, all kinds of different motives. That's the human heart. And it will be until we're given one and only one great motive of love for God. All right, so what does being found look like? It looks like coming to our senses. It looks like honesty. It looks like honesty about ourselves. Oh, God, I'm lost. When should we come to our senses, though? When should this happen in our life? When should we be honest about ourselves? Well, it certainly should happen when you become a Christian. Because what we find in the story in Luke 15, in these three stories, only lost, only that which is lost is found. A lost sheep found, a lost coin found, a lost younger son found, a lost older son. We'll have to wait for the rest of the story. But also, not only is it how you become a Christian and coming into becoming a Christian, a work of God in your life, that you actually become honest about yourself and you actually see the reality of need in your life and you actually say, oh man, I'm lost. I can't rescue myself. But the other thing is for Christians, that honesty is a lifestyle for Christians. So much so, it was so striking to me, I wanted to see, okay, what did Calvin say about this passage? Because this is a huge passage, right? What does the great Calvin say? You know what, Calvin, he doesn't even address an unbelieving person in, that, in his commentary on this passage. He addressed Christians with the younger brother, the lost younger brother. This is what he says, all, min- all miseries which we endure are profitable, are a profitable invitation to repentance, and repentance for him is honesty. So all miseries, everything that breaks down in your life that comes at you or comes out of you is a profitable, he says, invitation to honesty. I am in need. It's the lifestyle of the Christian. I am weak. It's the lifestyle of the Christian. I sin. Is the lifestyle of the Christian. I can't rescue myself. I'm lost, is the lifestyle of the Christian. How profitable is that to live this way? How profitable is it to live an honest life? If it's the hardest thing to do, it's the most impossible thing to do, the way you know that God is at work in a people, in a heart, in a marriage, in a church, is that there's honesty flourishing, people coming to their senses, people actually seeing reality. How profitable is that? Well, ask someone in an AA group how profitable it is. And then ask yourself this, because I've been asking this all week. I've asked it many times, but this week I was forced to more than others. Why is it that more messy people flock to AA than to the church? Answer, according to this passage, 
Honesty is there. People flock to honesty. How profitable is it? Well, ask the mom who finally admits she's a failure as a mom and what that unbearable burden of freedom feels like now. Ask a mom who finally sees the burden of the law of motherhood and honestly admits she can't be a perfect mom. And watch the light come back into her eyes and watch the life come back into her eyes and watch how profitable that is to a mom. How profitable is it for you to honestly acknowledge that you will never live up to the expectations of your parents, your boss, your spouse, your friends, Facebook, anything? It's incredibly profitable. Honesty gives life. Notice that the younger brother's honesty, though, is not just about I am lost. It's also about who's to blame. Did you see that? I mean, this is phenomenal. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, continues into 18, I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. At the end of the book, David gets in trouble. Uh, it's bedtime. David is in bed, and it is dark in his room, and David cries out from the dark, Yes, it's me. I did it. And his mom rushes in. Yes, it was me. I did it. No more blaming his father. Now you go all the way back to the beginning when sin entered the world and, and Adam was first confronted. He blamed his father, the woman you gave me. No more blaming his brother. No more Cain's killing Abel's. No more blaming his circumstances and his bad luck. It's the famine's fault. I got caught up in a worldwide epidemic of famine. No more blaming his lousy job. Well, I'm a pig herder. What do you expect? Yes, it's me. I did it. Honesty is always a mixture of good stuff and always a mixture of stupid stuff. Notice that his self-understanding ends in verse 19 in a particular way. Look what it says. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Oh, this is phenomenal. His plan See, he's honest. I'm lost. He gets it. I'm lost. He gets that, yes, it's me. I did it. But now, now he's got to, what do you do with that? His plan is to save himself. His plan is to go back and slave away and make himself acceptable before his father. His plan is to pay off the inheritance he just blew. His plan is to work off his sin debt. His plan is to make himself good enough to get on the ark. That's his plan. And that's the plan that's in place in every single human being. And Luther says it's actually the default mode of your heart and my heart. And it's actually 
what the older brother's heart looks like, and that's what we're going to see next week. He knows he just can't pay God back. Look, he knows he's been rebellious. He knows he's abused his dad. He knows he's wasted his life and he's wasted his inheritance. He knows he's been incredibly selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed and sensual and whatever. I mean, the older brother says he spent his money on prostitutes. So this is, he's reckless. He's, he's off the charts. He knows it. And he knows that he can't just go back because that wrecked his relationship with his father. It put up barriers in his relationship with his father. So how do you remove the barriers? How do you now get into God's acceptance? How do you now become an acceptable person? So when he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, that is exactly right. That's exactly true. He is not. But what he says next is not true. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I will make myself acceptable. I'll be good enough. So you can take me in. What happens next changes everything, though, doesn't it? Isn't it amazing that right after he sets himself up as his own savior, that the real one shows up? In verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the world has never seen a father like that. Don't miss the phrase, still a long way off. This, this phrase takes my breath away. It's the same word used in far country in verse 13. The picture, the implication here is breathtaking. While the sun is in a far country, while the sun is far, far away, while the sun is on the other side of the great chaotic deep, while the sun is in Tarshish, while the sun is in famine, while the sun is in need, while the sun is in hunger and lacking, while the sun is being decreated, the Father sees him and has compassion on him, loves him runs to him, embraces him, and kisses him over and over and over again. The world has never seen a father like this. Never. No Middle Eastern father, no Middle Eastern man runs anywhere. To do so is to be humiliated. And nor do Greek fathers. I'm so glad I found this quote. Aristotle wrote, great men never run in public. So you got the ancient world covered, the Greco-Roman world. You got the Middle Eastern Semitic world. No father, no nobleman, no honorable man would ever, ever run in public with his flowing robes everywhere. And we see those white, ugly ankles that never saw the son. So why did the father run? Why did he run? Certainly, he has this indomitable love for his son, right? And so he, he runs because he loves his son. That's certainly it. But you know what Kenneth Bailey says? There's something more, though, going on here. He writes, it's calculated to protect the boy from the hostility of the village. The village. 
Because when you get into that culture, it's the whole village he just repudiated and rejected. If a son leaves his dad, he's also leaving his mother, and he's also leaving his sisters, and he's also leaving his brothers. But in a paternal, traditional society like that, as he's rejecting the family values and the traditional culture that he grew up in, he's saying to everyone in that whole town, you're not good enough. He wrecked not only his relationship with his father, he wrecked all his human relationships of the community. And the father knows this. And so he, the son, has got to walk a gauntlet of shame to get to his father. But his father said, I'll run first. I'll run the gauntlet of shame in your place. Substitutionary love. And Luke has just prepared us for the greater gauntlet that several chapters later, God will run on your behalf. Because on that great day, Jesus enters the human race and he runs the greater gauntlet of unacceptability. And it's a gauntlet. It started the moment he entered the human race, the moment that he became vulnerable as a baby, the moment that he lived, breathed, ate, worked, lived 30-something years, and then the moment he died on the cross, it was a gauntlet of shame. It was a gauntlet of humiliation. And all of sin and demons and death and shame were cheering at the unacceptability that Jesus just became the most unacceptable person that ever lived on the planet. But God was cheering. Because while he's the most unacceptable person on the planet, he's making you and me acceptable. He's making us welcomed. He's making us sons and daughters. Don't miss that it's the Father's acceptance. The passage is moving to verse 20. It's going to kick out from verse 20. Everything is about the Father's acceptance. Everything is about this radical, radical, indomitable acceptance of the Father. And everything's moving to it. And once it happens, and once it impacts, and once it hits the Son, it changes everything. The Son changes. Do you want to know how you change? It's not by a law. It's not by an exhortation. It's not by me giving you a spiritual technique. It's when you get into verse 20. It's when you come to your senses about the Father's full, complete, total acceptance of you because someone else was unacceptable. You change. Your marriage changes, your communication changes, the way you interact with your money and your career changes, the way you deal with friends change, the way you parent changes, the way you see life changes, the way you see your neighbor changes, the way you see other messed up people changes. How do I know? How do we know? Well, look at the text. Look at his second speech. Something's missing from his second speech. There's something in the first speech before verse 20. But there's something missing in the second speech after verse 20. 
which is verse 21. What's missing? Answer, treat me as one of your hired servants. Trying to be his own savior is gone. Trying to work himself to make himself acceptable is gone. It went missing. Law of righteousness, if you want to get theological, if you're Paul, work salvation is gone. He finally accepts grace. The attraction of the passage. He finally accepts that he's accepted by grace. Through the unacceptability of someone else. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Yes, it's true. I'm lost. Yes, that's true. Yes, it's me. I did it. Yes, that's true. And I cannot make myself acceptable. Yes, that's true. But God, you do. You make me acceptable by pouring out a gauntlet of shame and humiliation and unacceptableness on your son. You see how the story ends? Of course it does, right? <laughs> of course it does. And they began to celebrate. Of course it ends that way. Come to your senses. And come to your senses by coming to the one who became unaccepted in your place. Because you and I know that deep in your gut is a deep sense of unacceptability. Right? And it's there. And you know it's there. And the reason why it's there is because it's true. We are not acceptable people. We are not worthy to be called a son or a daughter. But someone else went into our, our unacceptability, took our place, and gave us his. Come to your senses. Come to the unaccepted one and become accepted.